Hello again, I'm Richard Figge, and this is for Reading Out Loud. Thanks for joining me this evening. Mary Eleanor Wilkins Freeman was born in Randolph, Massachusetts in 1852. She and her sister Anna were subjected to a very strict childhood, but they reacted to it differently. While Anna tried to meet all her parents' expectations and assumed more and more domestic chores, Mary instinctively resisted them for fear of becoming like her passive and obedient mother and being identified by the tasks that seemed to define the good daughter. It is said that no amount of discipline could tear her away from her beloved reading. While she was still a teenager, she began to publish and to support the family with the money she earned. She gained celebrity as a writer and published over a dozen novels and as many volumes of short stories. At a time when female figures in stories were often seen as weak and in need of rescue by men, Mary Freeman celebrated strong women who wanted some control in deciding what made of life a life worth living. The Revolt of Mother by Mary Freeman Father? What is it? What are them men digging over there in the field for? There was a sudden dropping and enlarging of the lower part of the old man's face, as if some heavy weight had settled therein. He shut his mouth tight and went on harnessing the great bay mare. He hustled the collar onto her neck with a jerk. Father? The old man slapped the saddle upon the mare's back. Look here, father. I want to know what them men are digging over in the field for, and I'm going to know. I wish you'd go into the house, mother, and tend to your own affairs, the old man said then. He ran his words together, and his speech was almost as inarticulate as a growl. But the woman understood. It was her most native tongue. I ain't going into the house till you tell me what them men are doing over there in the field, said she. Then she stood waiting. She was a small woman, short and straight-waisted like a child in her brown cotton gown. Her forehead was mild and benevolent between the smooth curves of gray hair. There were meek downward lines about her nose and mouth, but her eyes, fixed upon the old man, looked as if the meekness had been the result of her own will, never of the will of another. They were in the barn, standing before the wide-open doors. The spring air, full of the smell of growing grass and unseen blossoms, came in their faces. The deep yard in front was littered with farm wagons and piles of wood. On the edges, close to the fence and the house, the grass was of vivid green, and there were some dandelions. The old man glanced doggedly at his wife as he tightened the last buckles on the harness. She looked as immovable to him as one of the rocks in his pasture-land bound to the earth with generations of blackberry vines. He slapped the reins over the horse and started forth from the barn. "'Father,' said she. The old man pulled up. "'What is it? I want to know what them men are digging over there in that field for.' "'They're digging a cellar, I suppose, if you've got to know. A cellar for what? A barn.' "'A barn? You ain't going to build a barn over there where we was going to have a house, father?' The old man said not another word. He hurried the horse into the farm wagon and clattered out of the yard, jouncing as sturdily on his seat as a boy. The woman stood a moment looking after him, then she went out of the barn across a corner of the yard to the house. The house, 
standing at right angles with a great barn and a long reach of sheds and outbuildings, was infinitesimal compared with them. It was scarcely as commodious for people as the little boxes under the barn eaves were for doves. A pretty girl's face, pink and delicate as a flower, was looking out of one of the house windows. She was watching three men who were digging over in the field which bounded the yard near the road line. She turned quietly when the woman entered. "'What are they digging for, mother?' said she. "'Did he tell you?' "'They're digging for a cellar for a new barn.' "'Oh, mother, he ain't going to build another barn.' "'That's what he says.' A boy stood before the kitchen glass, combing his hair. He combed slowly and painstakingly, arranging his brown hair in a smooth hillock over his forehead. He did not seem to pay any attention to the conversation. "'Sammy, did you know father was going to build a new barn?' asked the girl. The boy combed assiduously. "'Sammy!' He turned and showed a face like his father's under his smooth crest of hair. "'Yes, I suppose I did,' he said reluctantly. "'How long have you known it?' asked his mother. "'About three months, I guess. "'Why didn't you tell of it? "'Didn't think it would do no good.' "'I don't see what father wants another barn for,' said the girl, in her sweet, slow voice. She turned again to the window and stared out at the digging men in the field. Her tender, sweet face was full of a gentle distress. Her forehead was as bald and as innocent as a baby's, with the light hair strained back from it in a row of curl-papers. She was quite large, but her soft curves did not look as if they covered muscles. Her mother looked sternly at the boy. "'Is he going to buy more cows?' said she. The boy did not reply. He was tying his shoes. "'Sammy, I want you to tell me if he's going to buy more cows.' "'Why, suppose he is.' How many? Four, I guess. His mother said nothing more. She went into the pantry, and there was a clatter of dishes. The boy got his cap from a nail behind the door, took an old arithmetic from the shelf, and started for school. He was lightly built, but clumsy. He went out of the yard with a curious spring in the hips that made his loose homemade jacket tilt up in the rear. The girl went to the sink and began to wash the dishes that were piled up there. Her mother came promptly out of the pantry and shoved her aside. "'You wipe em, she said. "'I'll wash. There's a good many this morning.' The mother plunged her hands vigorously into the water. The girl wiped the plates slowly and dreamily. "'Mother,' she said, "'don't you think it's too bad father's going to build that new barn, much as we need a decent house to live in?' Her mother scrubbed a dish fiercely. "'You ain't found out yet we're women folks, Nanny Penn,' said she. "'You ain't seen enough of men folks yet, too. One of these days you'll find it out, and then you'll know that we know only what men folks think we do, so far as any use of it goes, and how we ought to reckon men folks in with providence and not complain of what they do any more than we do of the weather. I don't care. I don't believe George is anything like that, anyhow,' said Nanny." Her delicate face flushed pink. Her lips pouted softly, as if she were going to cry. "'You wait and see. I guess George Eastman ain't no better than other men. You hadn't ought to judge father, though. He can't help it, cause he don't look at things just the way we do. 
"'And we've been pretty comfortable here, after all. "'The roof don't leak. Ain't never but once. "'That's one thing. Father's kept it shingled right up. "'I do wish we had a parlor. "'I guess it won't hurt George Eastman any to come and see you in a nice clean kitchen. "'I guess a good many girls don't have as good a place as this. "'Nobody's ever heard me complain. "'I ain't complained either, Mother. "'Well, I don't think you'd better. "'A good father and a good home as you've got.' "'Suppose your father made you go out and work for your living. "'Lots of girls have to that ain't no stronger and better able than you be.' "'Sarah Penn washed the frying-pan with a conclusive air. "'She scrubbed the outside of it as faithfully as the inside. "'She was a masterly keeper of her box of a house. "'Her one living-room never seemed to have in it any of the dust "'which the friction of life with inanimate matter produces. "'She swept, and there seemed to be no dirt to go before the broom.' She cleaned, and one could see no difference. She was like an artist, so perfect that he has apparently no art. Today she got out a mixing bowl and a board and rolled some pies, and there was no more flour upon her than upon her daughter who was doing finer work. Nanny was to be married in the fall, and she was sewing on some white cambric and embroidery. She sewed industriously while her mother cooked her soft, milk-white hands and wrists showing whiter than her delicate work. "'We must have the stove moved out in the shed before long,' said Mrs. Penn. "'Talk about not having things. It's been a real blessing to be able to put a stove up in that shed in hot weather. Father did one good thing when he fixed that stovepipe out there.' Sarah Penn's face, as she rolled her pies, had that expression of meek vigor which might have characterized one of the New Testament saints. She was making mince pies. Her husband, Adoniram Penn, liked them better than any other kind. She baked twice a week. Adoniram often liked a piece of pie between meals. She hurried this morning. It had been later than usual when she began, and she wanted to have a pie baked for dinner. However deep a resentment she might be forced to hold against her husband, she would never fail in sedulous attention to his wants. Nobility of character manifests itself at loopholes when it is not provided with large doors. Sarah Penn's showed itself today in flaky dishes of pastry. So she made the pies faithfully, while across the table she could see, when she glanced up from her work, the sight that rankled in her patient and steadfast soul, the digging of the cellar of the new barn in the place where Adoniram forty years ago had promised her their new house should stand. The pies were done for dinner. Adoniram and Sammy were home a few minutes after twelve o'clock. The dinner was eaten with serious haste. There was never much conversation at the table in the Penn family. Adoniram asked a blessing, and they ate promptly, then rose up and went about their work. Sammy went back to school, taking soft, sly lopes out of the yard like a rabbit. He wanted a game of marbles before school, and feared his father would give him some chores to do. Adoniram hastened to the door and called after him, but he was out of sight. "'I don't see what you let him go for, mother,' said he. "'I wanted him to help me unload that wood.' Adoniram went to work out in the yard, unloading wood from the wagon. Sarah put away the dinner dishes, while Nanny took down her curl papers and changed her dress. She was going down to the store to buy some more embroidery and thread. When Nanny was gone, Mrs. Penn went to the door. "'Father!' she called. "'Well, what is it?' "'I want to see you just a minute, Father.' 
I can't leave this wood nohow. I got to get it unloaded and go for a load of gravel afore two o'clock. Sammy had ought to helped me. You hadn't ought to let him go to school so early. I want to see you just a minute. I tell you I can't nohow, mother. Father, you come here. Sarah Penn stood in the door like a queen. She held her head as if it bore a crown. There was that patience which makes authority royal in her voice. Adoniram went. Mrs. Penn led the way into the kitchen and pointed to a chair. "'Sit down, father,' said she. "'I've got something I want to say to you.' He sat down heavily. His face was quite stolid, but he looked at her with restive eyes. "'Well, what is it, mother?' "'I want to know what you're building that new barn for, father.' I ain't got nothing to say about it. It can't be you think you need another barn. I tell you I ain't got nothing to say about it, mother, and I ain't going to say nothing. Be you going to buy more cows? Adoniram did not reply. He shut his mouth tight. I know you be, as well as I want to. Now, father, look here. Sarah Penn had not sat down. She stood before her husband in the humble fashion of a scripture woman. I'm going to talk real plain to you. I never have since I married you, but I'm going to now. I ain't never complained, and I ain't going to complain now, but I'm going to talk plain. You see this room here, Father? You look at it well. You see there ain't no carpet on the floor, and you see the paper is all dirty and dropping off the walls. We ain't had no new paper on it for ten year, and then I put it on myself, and it didn't cost but nine pence a roll. You see this room, Father? It's all the one I've had to work in and eat in and sit in since we was married. There ain't another woman in the whole town whose husband ain't got half the means you have but what's got better. It's all the room Nanny's got to have her company in, and there ain't one of her mates but what's got better, and their father's not so able as hers is. It's all the room she'll have to be married in. What would you have thought, father, if we'd had our wedding in a room no better than this?' I was married in my mother's parlor, with a carpet on the floor and stuffed furniture and a mahogany card table, and this is all the room my daughter will have to be married in. Look here, father. Sarah Penn went across the room as though it were a tragic stage. She flung open a door and disclosed a tiny bedroom, only large enough for a bed and bureau with a path between. There, father, said she, that's all the room I've had to sleep in forty years. All my children were born there, the two that died and the two that's living. I was sick with a fever there. She stepped to another door and opened it. It led to the small, ill-lighted pantry. Here, said she, is all the buttery I've got, every place I've got for my dishes, to set away my victuals in, and to keep my milk pans in. Father, I've been taking care of the milk of six cows in this place, and now you're going to build a new barn and keep more cows and give me more to do in it. She threw open another door. A narrow, crooked flight of stairs wound upward from it. There, Father, she said, I want you to look at the stairs that go up to them two unfinished chambers that are all the places our son and daughter have had to sleep in all their lives— there ain't a prettier girl in town, or nor a more ladylike one than Nanny, and that's the place she has to sleep in. It ain't so good as your horse's stall. It ain't so warm and tight. Sarah Penn went back and stood before her husband. Now, father, she said, 
I want to know if you think you're doing right and according to what you profess. Here, when we was married forty year ago, you promised me faithful that we should have a new house built in that lot over in the field before the year was out. You said you had money enough, and you wouldn't ask me to live in no such place as this. It is forty year now, and you've been making more money, and I've been saving of it for you ever since, and you ain't built no house yet. You built sheds and cow houses and one new barn, and now you're going to build another. Father, I want to know if you think it's right. You're lodging your dumb beasts better than you are your own flesh and blood. I want to know if you think it's right. I ain't got nothing to say. You can't say nothing without owning it ain't right, Father. And there's another thing. I ain't complained. I've got along forty year, and I suppose I should forty more if it weren't for that, if we don't have another house. Nanny, she can't live with us after she's married. She'll have to go somewheres else to live away from us, and it don't seem as if I could have it so. No ways, father. She wa'n't ever strong. She's got considerable color, but there wa'n't never any backbone to her. I've always took the heft of everything off her, and she ain't fit to keep house and do everything herself. She'll be all worn out inside a year. Think of her doing all the washing and ironing and baking with them soft white hands and arms and sweeping. I can't have it so. No way is father. Mrs. Penn's face was burning. Her mild eyes gleamed. She had pleaded her little cause like a Webster. She had ranged from severity to pathos but her opponent employed that obstinate silence which makes eloquence futile with mocking echoes. Adoniram arose clumsily. "'Father, ain't you got nothing to say?' said Mrs. Penn. "'I've got to go off after that load of gravel. I can't stand here talking all day.' "'Father, won't you think it over and have a house built instead of a barn?' "'I ain't got nothing to say.' Adoniram shuffled out. Mrs. Penn went into her bedroom. When she came out, her eyes were red. She had a roll of unbleached cotton cloth. She spread it out on the kitchen table and began cutting out some shirts for her husband. The men over in the field had a team to help them this afternoon. She could hear their halloos. She had a scanty pattern for the shirts. She had to plan and piece the sleeves. Nanny came home with her embroidery, and sat down with her needlework. She had taken down her curl-papers, and there was a soft roll of fair hair like an aureole over her forehead. Her face was as delicately fine and clear as porcelain. Suddenly she looked up, and the tender red flamed all over her face and neck. "'Mother,' said she, "'what say? I've been thinking. I don't see how we're going to have any wedding in this room.' I'd be ashamed to have his folks come here if we didn't have anybody else. Maybe we can have some new paper before then. I can put it on. I guess you won't have no call to be ashamed of your belongings. You might have the wedding in the new barn, said Nanny, with gentle pettishness. Why, mother, what makes you look so? Mrs. Penn had started and was staring at her with a curious expression. She turned again to her work and spread out a pattern carefully on the cloth. "'Nothing,' she said. Presently Adoniram clattered out of the yard in his two-wheeled dump-cart, 
standing as proudly upright as a Roman charioteer. Mrs. Penn opened the door and stood there a minute looking out. The halloos of the men sounded louder. It seemed to her all through the spring months that she heard nothing but the halloos and the noises of saws and hammers. The new barn grew fast. It was a fine edifice for this little village. Men came on pleasant Sundays in their meeting suits and clean shirt-bosoms, and stood around it admiringly. Mrs. Penn did not speak of it, and Adoniram did not mention it to her, although sometimes, upon a return from inspecting it, he bore himself with injured dignity. "'It's a strange thing how your mother feels about the new barn,' he said confidentially to Sammy one day. Sammy only grunted after an odd fashion for a boy. He had learned it from his father. The barn was all completed, ready for use, by the third week in July. Adoniram had planned to move his stock in on Wednesday. On Tuesday he received a letter which changed his plans. He came in with it early in the morning. "'Sammy's been to the post-office,' he said, "'and we got a letter from Hiram.' Hiram was Mrs. Penn's brother, who lived in Vermont. "'Well,' said Mrs. Penn, "'what does he say about the folks?' "'I guess they're all right.' He says he thinks if I come up country right off, there's a chance to buy just the kind of a horse I want. He stared reflectively out of the window of the new barn. Mrs. Penn was making pies. She went on clapping the rolling pin in the crust, although she was very pale, and her heart beat loudly. "'I don't know but what I'd better go,' said Adoniram. "'I hate to go off just now, right in the midst of haying, but the ten-acre lot's cut.' "'and I guess Rufus and the others can get along without me for three or four days. "'I can't get a horse around here to suit me, nohow, "'and I've got to have another for all the wood-hauling in the fall. "'I told Hiram to watch out, and if he got wind of a good horse to let me know. "'I guess I'd better go.' "'I'll get out your clean shirt and collar,' said Mrs. Penn calmly. "'She laid out Adoniram's Sunday suit and his clean clothes on the bed in the little bedroom.' She got his shaving water and razor ready. At last she buttoned on his collar and fastened his black cravat. Adoniram never wore his collar and cravat except on extra occasions. He held his head high with a rasped dignity. When he was all ready, with his coat and hat brushed, and a lunch of pie and cheese in a paper bag, he hesitated on the threshold of the door. He looked at his wife and his manner was defiantly apologetic. "'If them cows come today, Sammy can drive them into the new barn,' said he, "'and when they bring the hay up, they can pitch it in there.' "'Well,' replied Mrs. Penn. Adoniram set his shaven face ahead and started. When he had cleared the doorstep, he turned and looked back with a kind of nervous solemnity. "'I shall be back by Saturday if nothing happens,' said he. "'Do be careful, father,' returned his wife. She stood in the door with Nanny at her elbow and watched him out of sight. Her eyes had a strange, doubtful expression in them. Her peaceful forehead was contracted. She went in and about her baking again. Nanny sat sewing. Her wedding day was drawing nearer, and she was getting pale and thin with her steady sewing. Her mother kept glancing at her. "'Have you got that pain in your side this morning?' she asked. "'A little.' Mrs. Penn's face, as she worked, changed. 
her perplexed forehead smoothed, her eyes were steady, her lips firmly set. She formed a maxim for herself, although incoherently with her unlettered thoughts. Unsolicited opportunities are the guideposts of the Lord to the new roads of life, she repeated in effort, and she made up her mind to her course of action. "'Sposen I had written to Hiram,' she muttered once, when she was in the pantry. "'Sposen I had wrote and asked him if he knew of any horse. But I didn't, and father's gone want none of my doing. It looks like a providence!' Her voice rang out quite loud at the last. "'What are you talking about, mother?' called Nanny. "'Nothing.' Mrs. Penn hurried her baking. At eleven o'clock it was all done. The load of hay from the west field came slowly down the cart track and drew up at the new barn. Mrs. Penn ran out. "'Stop!' she screamed. "'Stop!' The men stopped and looked. Sammy upreared from the top of the load and stared at his mother. "'Stop!' she cried out again. "'Don't you put the hay in that barn.' "'Put it in the old one.' "'Why, he said to put it in here,' returned one of the haymakers wonderingly. He was a young man, a neighbor's son, whom Adoniram hired by the year to help on the farm. "'Don't you put the hay in the new barn. There's room enough in the old one, ain't there?' said Mrs. Penn. "'Room enough,' reasoned the hired man in his thick, rustic tones. "'Didn't need the new barn, nohow, far as room's concerned. Well, I suppose he changed his mind.' He took hold of the horse's bridles. Mrs. Penn went back to the house. Soon the kitchen windows were darkened, and a fragrance like warm honey came into the room. Nanny laid down her work. "'I thought Father wanted them to put the hay into the new barn,' she said wonderingly. "'It's all right,' replied her mother. Sammy slid down from the load of hay and came in to see if dinner was ready. "'I ain't going to get a regular dinner today as long as Father's gone,' said his mother. I've let the fire go out. You can have some bread and milk and pie. I thought we could get along. She set out some bowls of milk, some bread, and a pie on the kitchen table. You'd better eat your dinner now, said she. You might just as well get through with it. I want you to help me afterward. Nanny and Sammy stared at each other. There was something strange in their mother's manner. Mrs. Penn did not eat anything herself. She went into the pantry and they heard her moving dishes while they ate. Presently she came out with a pile of plates. She got the clothes basket out of the shed and packed them in it. Nanny and Sammy watched. She brought out cups and saucers and put them in with the plates. "'What are you going to do, mother?' inquired Nanny in a timid voice. A sense of something unusual made her tremble as if it were a ghost. Sammy rolled his eyes over his pie. "'You'll see what I'm going to do,' replied Mrs. Penn. "'If you're through, Nanny, I want you to go upstairs and pack up your things, and I want you, Sammy, to help me take down the bed in the bedroom.' "'Oh, Mother, what for?' gasped Nanny. "'You'll see.' During the next few hours a feat was performed by this simple, pious New England mother, which was equal in its way to Wolfe's storming of the heights of Abraham. It took no more genius and audacity of bravery for Wolf to cheer his wandering soldiers up those steep precipices under the sleeping eyes of the enemy 
than for Sarah Penn, at the head of her children, to move all their little household goods into the new barn while her husband was away. Nanny and Sammy followed their mother's instructions without a murmur. Indeed, they were overawed. There is a certain uncanny and superhuman quality about all such purely original undertakings as their mother's was to them. Nanny went back and forth with her light loads, and Sammy tugged with sober energy. At five o'clock in the afternoon the little house in which the Pens had lived for forty years had emptied itself into the new barn. Every builder builds somewhat for unknown purposes, and is in a measure a prophet. The architect of Adoniram Penn's barn, while he designed it for the comfort of four-footed animals, had planned better than he knew for the comfort of humans. Sarah Penn saw at a glance its possibilities. Those great box stalls with quilts hung before them would make better bedrooms than the one she had occupied for forty years, and there was a tight carriage room. The harness room, with its chimney and shelves, would make a kitchen of her dreams. The great middle space would make a parlor by and by, fit for a palace. Upstairs there was as much room as down. With partitions and windows, what a house would there be! Sarah looked at the row of stanchions before the allotted space for cows, and reflected that she would have her front entry there. At six o'clock the stove was up in the harness-room, the kettle was boiling, and the table set for tea. It looked almost as homelike as the abandoned house across the yard had ever done. The young hired man milked, and Sarah directed him calmly to bring the milk to the new barn. Before the next morning he had spread the story of Adoniram Penn's wife moving into the new barn all over the little village. Men assembled in the store and talked it over, women with shawls over their head scuttled into each other's houses before their work was done. Any deviation from the ordinary course of life in this quiet town was enough to stop all progress in it. Everybody paused to look at the staid, independent figure on the side-track. There was a difference of opinion with regard to her. Some held her to be insane, some of a lawless and rebellious spirit. Friday the minister went to see her. It was in the forenoon, and she was at the barn door shelling peas for dinner. She looked up and returned his salutation with dignity. Then she went on with her work. She did not invite him in. The saintly expression of her face remained fixed, but there was an angry flush over it. The minister stood awkwardly before her and talked. She handled the peas as if they were bullets. At last she looked up, and her eyes showed the spirit that her meek front had covered for a lifetime. "'There ain't no use talking, Mr. Hersey,' said she. "'I've thought it all over and over.' and I believe I'm doing what's right. I've made it the subject of prayer, and it's betwixt me and the Lord and Adoniram. There ain't no call for nobody else to worry about it. Well, of course, if you've brought it to the Lord in prayer, and feel satisfied that you are doing right, Mrs. Penn, said the minister, helplessly. His thin, gray-bearded face was pathetic. He was a sickly man. His youthful countenance had cooled, he had to scourge himself up to some of his pastoral duties as relentlessly as a Catholic ascetic, and then 
he was prostrated by the smart. "'I think it's right just as much as I think it was right for our forefathers to come over from the old country, cause they didn't have what belonged to them,' said Mrs. Penn. She arose. The barn threshold might have been Plymouth Rock from her bearing. "'I don't doubt you mean well, Mr. Hersey,' she said. "'But there are things people hadn't ought to interfere with. I've been a member of the church for over forty years. I've got my own mind and my own feet, and I'm going to think my own thoughts and go my own ways, and nobody but the Lord is going to dictate to me unless I've a mind to have him. Won't you come in and sit down? How is Miss Hersey?' "'She is well, I thank you,' replied the minister. He added some more perplexed, apologetic remarks. Then he retreated." He could expound the intricacies of every character study in the Scriptures. He was competent to grasp the Pilgrim Fathers and all historical innovators, but Sarah Penn was beyond him. He could deal with primal cases, but parallel ones worsted him. But after all, although it was aside from his province, he wondered more how Adoniram Penn would deal with his wife than how the Lord would. Everybody shared the wonder— when Adoniram's four new cows arrived, Sarah ordered three to be put in the old barn, the outer in the house-shed where the cooking-stove had stood. That added to the excitement. It was whispered that all four cows were domiciled in the house. Towards sunset on Saturday, when Adoniram was expected home, there was a knot of men in the road near the new barn. The hired man had milked, but he still hung around the premises. Sarah Penn had supper all ready. There were brown bread and baked beans and a custard pie. It was the supper that Adoniram loved on a Saturday night. She had on a clean calico, and she bore herself imperturbably. Nanny and Sammy kept close at her heels. Their eyes were large, and Nanny was full of nervous tremors. Still there was to them more pleasant excitement than anything else, and inborn confidence in their mother over their father asserted itself. Sammy looked out the harness-room window. "'There he is!' he announced in an awed whisper. He and Nanny peeped around the casing. Mrs. Penn kept on about her work. The children watched Adoniram leave the new horse standing in the drive while he went to the house door. It was fastened. Then he went around to the shed. That door was seldom locked, even when the family was away. The thought how her father would be confronted by the cow flashed upon Nanny. There was a hysterical sob in her throat. Adoniram emerged from the shed and stood looking about in a dazed fashion. His lips moved. He was saying something, but they could not hear what it was. The hired man was peeping around a corner of the old barn, but nobody saw him. Adoniram took the new horse by the bridle and led him across the yard to the new barn. Nanny and Sammy slunk close to their mother. The barn doors rolled back, and there stood Adoniram, with the long, mild face of the great Canadian farm horse looking over his shoulder. Nanny kept behind her mother, but Sammy stepped suddenly forward and stood in front of her. Adoniram stared at the group. "'What on earth you all down here for?' said he. "'What's the matter over to the house?' "'We've come here to live, father,' said Sammy. 
His shrill voice quavered out bravely. What? Adoniram sniffed. What is it smells like cooking? said he. He stepped forward and looked in the open door of the harness room. Then he turned to his wife. His old bristling face was pale and frightened. What on earth does this mean, mother? he gasped. You come in here, father, said Sarah. She led the way into the harness room and shut the door. Now, father, she said, you needn't be scared. I ain't crazy. There ain't nothing to be upset over. But we've come here to live, and we're going to live here. We've got just as good a right here as new horses and cows. The house won't fit for us to live in any longer, and I made up my mind I wasn't going to stay there. I've done my duty by you forty year, and I'm going to do it now, but I'm going to live here. You've got to put in some windows and partitions, and you'll have to buy some furniture. Why, mother! the old man gasped. You'd better take your coat off and get washed. There's the wash basin, and then we'll have supper. Why, mother! Sammy went past the window, leading the new horse to the old barn. The old man saw him and shook his head speechlessly. He tried to take off his coat, but his arms seemed to lack the power. His wife helped him. She poured some water into the tin basin and put in a piece of soap. She got the comb and brush and smoothed his thin gray hair after he had washed. Then she put the beans, hot bread, and tea on the table. Sammy came in, and the family drew up. Adoniram sat looking dazedly at his plate, and they waited. "'Ain't you going to ask a blessing, father?' said Sarah. And the old man bent his head and mumbled. All through the meal he stopped eating at intervals and stared furtively at his wife. But he ate well. The home food tasted good to him, and his old frame was too sturdily healthy to be affected by his mind. But after supper he went out and sat down on the step of the smaller door at the right of the barn through which he had meant his jerseys to pass in stately file, but which Sarah designed for her front-house door, and he leaned his head on his hands. After the supper dishes were cleared away and the milk pans washed, Sarah went out to him. The twilight was deepening. There was a clear green glow in the sky. Before them stretched the smooth level of field. In the distance was a cluster of haystacks like the huts of a village. The air was very cool and calm and sweet. The landscape might have been an ideal one of peace. Sarah bent over and touched her husband on one of his thin, sinewy shoulders. Father! The old man's shoulders heaved. He was weeping. Why, don't do so, father, said Sarah. I'll put up the partitions and everything you want, mother. Sarah put her apron up to her face. She was overcome by her own triumph. Adoniram was like a fortress whose walls had no active resistance and went down the instant the right besieging tools were used. My mother, he said hoarsely, I had no idea you were so set on as all this comes to. 
You've been listening to The Revolt of Mother by Mary Wilkins Freeman. It has been said that this story initiated the discussion on the rights of rural women in the early 20th century. In 1926, Mary Freeman became the first recipient of the William Dean Howells Medal for Distinction in Fiction from the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. Speaking for her central character in tonight's story, she said, Nobility of character manifests itself at loopholes when it is not provided with large doors. I'm Richard Figge, and this has been for Reading Out Loud. I hope you'll join me again next week. In the meantime, be well, be happy, stay safe, all the best. 